This podcast is brought to you by its financial supporters on Venmo, PayPal, and Patreon. Zach, Breck, Jed, Tom, Alex, Christine, Jeff, William, Mark, Danny, and Dave. Thank you for helping me to have these conversations and to create this content. Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public, and it's something that I want to share. The following is a conversation with Danielle Crittenden. Danielle is an author, a mother of three, and the host of the Femsplainers podcast. During our conversation, Danielle talks about her book, What Our Mothers Didn't Tell Us, Why Happiness Eludes the Modern Woman, Feminism in the Modern World, Women and Happiness, The Role of Mothers in Our Society, Her 30-plus year marriage to author and essayist David Frum, and advice she would give to young men and young women about the role of relationships and work in a happy, wise life. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Danielle Crittenden. All right, Danielle. Well, first, I wanted to say thanks for for doing this. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. So it's great to meet you and uh, welcome to the show. It's good to have you on. Well, thank you for having me on. Very excited to be here. Likewise, uh, excited to have you. Um, Was thinking about how to start this and I thought it might be helpful to begin with a a book of yours that I was reading yesterday, which is, uh, I believe, titled What Our Mothers Didn't Tell Us, Why Happiness Eludes the Modern Woman. I may have butchered that subtitle a little bit, but no, you that, got it. That that book, if I were if I understand it correctly, is either twenty years old or slightly more than twenty years old. Uh, so it's it's been out since either ninety nine or two thousand something. Ninety nine, like yeah. Ninety nine. Yeah. What brought you to want to write that book? And in your mind, looking back on it, reflecting it, what what matters in that book today that's still relevant? Okay, so fascinated you asked that because I'm now thinking of revisiting that book and writing a sequel, like what we tell our daughters. Um, it's it it. So I have to I have to roll back a bit. So I grew up. Um, I've been a journalist literally my whole life since I was. I think my first byline was when I was nine years old. <laughs> Not joking. My my my. My late stepfather was, I grew up in Toronto. I had four parents, step, you know, step parents, all worked in newspapers. And my stepfather went on to become the founding editor of the Toronto Sun, which was a major Mm. daily and the first tabloid there. And um, so I just literally grew up in a newsroom and I was writing for a long time. Um, And uh, I began writing. uh, Once I got out of high school, I went straight to work for the newspaper and began covering a lot of women's issues. And so at the time I was 20, I was, um, I considered myself a feminist. I was that post second wave. So mm-hmm. Betty Friedan and um, women through the seventies were like the equivalent of my mother's age. And I was the beneficiary generation. And I, in that youthful, arrogant way, just had like, what are you guys, what are you ladies complaining about at this point? Um, 
the we had to my mind achieved equality we could do what we want in the workforce um the the rights that they were talking about seemed to have been won and what was sort of left of the movement at that time was a kind of anti-maleness anti anti-femaleness really like it was the 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 feminist movement, and, and it's still that way to some degree today, to the degree it exists in any formal way, um, is to really try and encourage women not just to have the same rights as men, but to be men. That our lives, I remember at the time feeling that there was so much messaging about how important it is to have a career, to be independent, to not ever depend on a man yet have the exact same career path as a man. Uh, and these other things like getting married or having children were seen not only not encouraged, I, th I felt they were actively discouraged. And a woman, a young woman at, at that time, uh, my age, would feel vaguely embarrassed to say that she wanted to get married or have children, or if she did have children, the thing to do was like immediately put them into daycare. Don't let them affect your job. So there was all this focus uh, on career. And when you look back to this kind of middle and upper middle class thing, because a lot of women who are working are not doing it to fulfill their inner dreams, but because they have to. I think yeah. even today, the majority of women work as cashiers. You know, it's so when you talk about boardrooms and, and careers, it's it's you know, for educated, ambitious uh, women. So anyway, I, so I began covering a lot of feminist topics and I was really starting to bridle at the anti-maleness of it. And, and this idea that, you know, to be in any way female was considered embarrassing or wrong. And then I got married myself, despite having these thoughts, I got married myself at 25, which I had no intention of doing. Um, yeah. I just met the right person, I guess. And, and then I had a baby at 28. And I, despite, again, the feminist message, I wasn't particularly interested in having babies. Uh, but I did. And, and once you have a child, that really transforms your view of the world, of yourself, of your way of thinking, even more than marriage. And I suddenly realized, like, wow, if women want to realize their ambitions, um, we're going to have to wrestle with this kid thing because it's very hard to have a child, you know, and continue pursuing a career uh, full time. And it's also um, when you have a child, you don't want to walk away from that child. It's not the immediate instinct when you're handed your newborn baby to mm -hmm. push it back and say, <laughs> You know, put that thing in eight, eight hours a day. Well, I, I'm mom's busy, you know, like that is not your reaction when you have a child. Um, so I realized that there were all of these ungrappled other personal ambitions, uh, uh, personal ambitions that have not, that the feminist movement was not grappling with, was actively ignoring. And, uh, and so that's what I began to write about. And I came to the conclusion. Also, my generation was that generation where women were beginning to postpone everything, postpone marriage, postpone having babies. And I was seeing down the pike, a lot of women in their thirties really either regretting that or struggling to meet people or 
they met someone struggling to have children because unlike men, you know, we, we do have a timeline on our ability to do those things. So I, I just got fascinated with the whole topic. And yes, it's a rather grandiose title, <laughs> subtitle, <laughs> Why Happiness Eludes the Modern Woman. Uh, but I, I wanted to write um, from my own experience and, and from my journalism, just how you could be a fulfilled, ambitious, accomplished woman um, while also embracing the the joys of being a woman, um, being different from a man. I know now this is like unbelievably retrograde to even talk about biological differences, uh, but but that was my thinking at the time, and it it seemed to have resonance. So I think I, I broke the book down into chapters on love, marriage, sex. Um, I had a small bit of politics towards the end of it, but I was really focused on opening up uh, discussions on on encountering what had become a very ideological approach to these very personal aspects of our lives. And I think those messages, I still, I think my book is now taught pieces of it in college courses, and I get really nice notes occasionally from readers who've discovered it who are in their 20s now. And even if, I mean, it was pre-internet, so even if some of the research or examples seem antiquated, the underlying messages of how to balance your life, um, how not to be ashamed, why you shouldn't be ashamed of wanting certain things, how to be in a relationship uh, without being coming at it as an adversary to your own marriage, you know? So, so those are the topics that I talk about and they're still resonant. And now when I look at my, my youngest daughter is now 20, I have three kids, eldest is 30, 28 year old son, Siren, sorry. Um, uh, I see the Gen Z, which is my twenty-year-old, and my and my millennials. I, I'm, I'm a little concerned because they seem even. I mean, statistically, the Gen Zers are are having a terrible time in relationships with sex, with uh, with everything. They're depressed. They're anxious. They're committing suicide. Much higher rates than previous generations. So I. I I kind of want to um, revisit those topics in a, yeah. a in a big way. This is a big reason why I wanted to to meet you and to talk to you because I, I think so much of this, right, like the relationship between men and women, and family, and all the subjects you've already mentioned, are kind of at the root of civilization and everything else. A lot of the rest of life flows downstream from that dynamic and and how that is how that dynamic dynamic is flourishing or not flourishing in a, in a society. I think I've heard you say in another interview that, um, you know, women can have everything that they want. They just can't have everything at the same time. All at um, once. Yes. All at once. Yes. And I would love for you in however much detail as you would like to detail what you think is the difference between the messaging you would encourage for your daughters, for example, as to a wise approach to dating, marriage, career, versus the one that they may be receiving from the the, the difference of the messaging that they may be receiving from the general culture, or maybe more specifically, higher education. Um, you can take that however you'd want, but I'd be curious to get your thoughts on that. 
Well, a lot of the important messaging starts in adolescence. Yeah. Um, in my own, uh, in my own family, my, um, and this is, this is relevant uh, because I also dedicated the book to my mother and said, mom, this book isn't about you, despite its title, what our mothers in Dallas, because my mom was a tremendous example. She worked, she worked as a journalist all through the fifties. She had kids. She got married when she was like 20, which is mm. what they did back then. Um, she had kids in her early to mid twenties. And she told me uh, growing up, she said, being a mother was one of the greatest experiences she absolutely loved being home with us when we were little. Uh, and then the minute we were in school full time, she started freelancing and working again. And by the time I was a teenager, she was, you know, we were the so-called latchkey kids of the seventies yeah. and eighties. We didn't care. We like not being observed by our parents all the time. Um, and, uh, and, and so she went back to work and so, and she had her second marriage. She did divorce my father also when we were quite young and then she remarried and my stepfather is just a tremendous, tremendous person and, and their marriage was very happy. And it, it was a great example of what you can do. So I had a, on the firstly, I had a great role model. My mother also would <laughs> say to me, and sex is really important. You should love sex. Like she wasn't hysterical about sex, you know, or if you get, I'm when you're 16, I'm getting you the birth control. She wasn't like modern. She wasn't cool. She just, I don't know. Maybe it was generational. She just had a healthy, robust love for men, for work, for life, for marriage, for kids. Um, and so I took a lot of her example in my writing and I took a lot of her example to my own daughters. And I think it, it, as you say, there's the outside culture telling you know, them that, that girls um, sh should be just like boys, always make the first move. Don't be, you're a proud girl. You know, you, you know, the whole rah, rah womanhood. Boys are, um, have a lot of rules that they still shouldn't do, but I, you see a kind of callousness developing now and, 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 um, and, and nobody, and this was true back when I was writing, Nobody thinking seriously about the future, the long-term, about their long-term relationships, a, a long-term like parenthood forming families. I think that's maybe the most damaging message that um, they're getting is that you don't have to think about these things too seriously. And yet, as you point out, they not only they underlie our civilization, they underline ultimately our happiness. I mean, you know, the old cliche is when you're on your deathbed, you you don't say, oh, I wish I spent more time in the office. Like um, that these relationships, as we know from our own families and our relationships with our parents, for better or worse, are the most important relationships we have. When you, you know, if you get married, uh, that's going to be the most, not just the most important relationship you have to your own personal happiness, but I think it really informs your success in life. Hmm. That um, that uh, my husband used to say that once you've settled who you're going to be with for the rest of your life. Now I know people get divorced and things, but if you know, making that commitment early is certainly one of the biggest. And I think this is, remains true, especially for men, for women. One of the biggest anxieties and questions you have, hmm. and when you have that solid base, personal base, you can then 
really focus and feel secure about the other things that you do in your life. So to, to all my children, I, we, we both message that this is important and you will want to have, you know, if you want to have a family, this is how you need to think about it and, and take it as seriously as you would take your desire to go to law school. You know, Mm -hmm. it's, you don't just brush it to the side and, and put it secondarily. So my daughter's um, our main message to them was dating is shopping. Don't settle, like don't lock it. There is no reason to settle in some serious long-term relationship with someone you're not really ultimately serious about. So living together with someone, you know, just because it's, better than not living with someone is, is wrong. Like you go about it with the determination that you're going to find, um, I don't want to say that important party dress, <laughs> but <laughs> you don't settle, you, you know, like you don't lock in until you're ready to lock in and, 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 and don't get into these quasi marital relationships that, um, and also the other message, which went against the time, especially when they were teenagers is, uh, this whole hookup culture such to the degree it exists, you don't need to participate in that. Mm-hmm. I, I said, ask when you're being pressured or think you should be behaving in a certain way through high school, first of all, understand any guy you're with in high school, you're not going to be with like, first of all, he's not thinking this is the greatest love of my life and we're going to settle down together. It's, it's going to be by necessity, some short term thing. It's maybe a nice, starter way to learn how you react. But adolescents are, you know, seething messes of hormones. I said, you can just, you know, you can just skip all that. You don't have to do that. I would just say, I would, I always said, what would your 25 year old self say to your 16 year old self? If you do something with this guy at a party, like Mm. be true to your older self, try and not do things that your older self is going to be embarrassed about or regret. And obviously that we all do those things, but it kind of had that between the seriousness of looking for someone who is worthy of you, um, who respects you. Uh, that's a long-term and who, with whom you're going to be happy with and vice versa. That's a long-term project and to be taken seriously at a very early age. Yeah. You know, I think part of the I think I roughly got the subtitle of your book correct about why happiness eludes the the modern the modern woman, and I would love for you to talk about what you have seen in your life about what can happen to women who don't take the approach that you would recommend for your daughter, right? Who focus, you know, primarily give their energies to where they're going to law school, to where they're working, you know, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but can, you know, are putting off these decisions with a lack of seriousness that it seems like you think it merits. Um, What have you seen can happen to women who, you know, wake up at a certain age and are not in a place that is making them happy, is making them fulfilled. The work isn't necessarily everything it was cracked up to be for them. How did, how do you see what can happen to women specifically who don't, you know, heed some of the wisdom you're trying to impart to your daughters? 
Well, I would say, and, and by the way, I should just mention my 28 year old son just got engaged. So I'm thrilled. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, he's, yeah. he's also lying. He like, there were, there were, what I, what I would say is there are consequences to both men and women, uh, but they're different, but yeah. they're, they're, and, and, you know, if you go roll back a little bit to the sexual revolution of the seventies, where, um, this all began and women, you, you know, sex was became a wonderful thing outside of marriage and with lots of partners and women were encouraged to have multiple, multiple partners, just like men. And they were going to be just as happy and they didn't care if the guy didn't call the next day. Like what we seem to have ended up doing is liberating men, mostly is liberating men from any responsibility um, or commitment. It, it, it really kind of hit us in the face. Um, so, so, Today, and this is what worries me a little, it may not matter what a woman wants uh, if you've got ill-like commitments, levels of commitment from men. Um, I do think men eventually do also, from what I've, from what I've understood and what I've, I've actually, one of my favorite guests on, on my podcast is having this relationship coach who I think is amazing. Uh, but, but he says, like, you know, men do to want to settle down eventually. They don't want to be endlessly drifting, but they have a they will come to it much later than women. Mm -hmm. So you've got, first of all, this disparity between, say, a 26, seven, eight-year-old woman and a 32, three, four-year-old man who doesn't seem it's urgent to make any kind of commitment. And then uh, for the woman, even if she's, I have, Found again. I'm making just huge generalizations, but uh, even if they're happy in their work, if they want to have a child, if they want to have a serious relationship, it gets harder and harder and harder to do so. And the psychic toll of that clock ticking, which still ticks, hmm. um, becomes harder and harder uh, to bear. And I an, an analogy I had in the book, which I think is is still true that. When a woman is in her 20s, you know, men come along with the frequency of subway cars at rush hour. I mean, there's just a new one pulling in every day, showing interest. And by the time you start crossing 30, it's now like the New York subway at midnight. Like the cars are mostly empty, but when they open, like crazy people come out. And, <laughs> and I just, I see that. I mean, my 20-year-old daughter, oh, my God, I love being with my daughters out at a restaurant because suddenly the service just picks up. You know, we can get a taxi right away. Like, it's wonderful. You know, if I'm by myself, that just doesn't happen. But, but you can really see the palpable effect of a 20-year-old uh, walking with a 20-year-old, you know, attractive young woman and 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 being a almost 60 year old woman walking my way. So, so, so there's that. And that's just, um, and then I think it, I think it's going to, again, generalization women. I have noticed tend to get more neurotic as the time goes by that, that I feel we have a lot of impulses to take care of things. You know, that's why single women seem to get cats. <laughs> I had a friend who once joked, I thought pretty cruelly that if you get three cats, that's it. You're going to never be married. <laughs> don't get three cats. Don't get more than one cat. Uh, but we, you know, you, they get cats, they get dogs. They, 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 they have a 
we have a strong impulse to want to be close to things and take care of things. And when that goes unfulfilled, it, it gets very upsetting and frustrating. And we start looking for other, uh, you know, maybe we start taking it upon ourselves. We're very self-critical. Mm. We're very self-critical sex. Men, on the other hand, I noticed, um, they just, uh, if you, if this reference isn't too old, but Henry Higgins from My Fair Lady, the eccentric bachelor that they start they they don't seem to have that emotional um uh they don't seem to be so um i'm sorry they don't seem to be so uh compelled like they can get by they can enjoy hanging out with their buddies they can enjoy sports games they can enjoy their job they don't have they can play minecraft all night they don't have the same drive necessarily to have that strong emotional attachment earlier on and the result that they kind of get eccentric. Um, they get that like the very Peter Panish, very boyish. Um, they have big, you know, uh, stereo speakers and systems and elaborate televisions and things like that. But they, but they, they also find it harder. They become more rigid. And I think it's true of both sexes. The older we get, of course, the more rigid we get about anything in our habits and. And it then also becomes harder and harder to come together. So when you're looking at a 35-year-old woman and a 35 to 45-year-old man who have never been married, yeah. um, you're looking at two now pretty well-formed individuals who are going to do have to have a lot more work um, easing up and melding together in their habits than they would have been had they met earlier and started earlier on this project. Yeah, as it were. If that makes sense. Yes. So let let's concede for the moment that, and, and again, I think you're correct that a lot of this is just our generalizations. But let let's concede that you are correct in your assessment of, you know, women, roughly speaking, and and time, and what happens to people over time, uh, who you know maybe don't partner up or don't take coupling particularly seriously. This is a rather new phenomenon in Western culture in America. You know, you, you made the observation earlier, which I thought was was interesting, related to how really this seems to have been on balance a gift to men and allowing them to dance around any real responsibility. Where do you place the the responsibility or the the genesis of this shift in thinking about uh, thinking in terms of the way that women are um, prioritizing their life, where does this all really come back to in terms of how this all started in the first place? Well, I think it goes back and look, I don't want to glamorize the past or the the 1950s, which also was a kind of weird decade, um, abnormal decade, given what had just preceded it, you know, that, that people, I remember when my book came out, they, the critics would say, you just want women to go back to the 1950s. And it's like, well, no, I didn't even know the 1950s, but that's, that's not what I'm saying. Um, uh, but I think it, look, there were real problems then. Um, there were 
real constraints on women who did want to um, realize their ambitions. You had a lot of smart women. You had a lot of smart women like Betty Friedan who were, had gone to college and then the, the, the culture of that era suggested that they should be happy at home with their new machines that wondrously did everything for them. Um, and, and they got fed up. Uh, and, and so, you know, so that was a necessary correction. I think I remember reading just so many books from that era for my, for my own research. The real problem of it came from this, the politicization. I think one of the most damaging phrases ever is, and I think it was Gloria Steinem who it's attributed the political is personal. Um, so what it cast us, this thinking cast us into this idea that uh, women were the proletariat, uh, men were like the capitalist exploiters. And so every, the most intimate level, every sexual encounter you had, every relationship you entered was to be seen in these power struggle terms um, in, in which the man was all powerful, uh, patriarchy. So once you start thinking that way, it you kind of erase your own superpowers that men, women have their own sexual power, men have their sexual power. And you, I think you used the word dance at one point. There was a dance that you did and, and there was an understanding. Uh, but once you told women that they had to wield their sexual power like men, and that meant, yeah, you can sleep with a lot of people. You don't need commitment. You don't need this. You don't need that. It, it undermined us. And it also made having relationships difficult. One of the analogies I use in my book was women and men enter um, living together like some union negotiation, you know, like now you're going to unload the dishwasher and take out the garbage and I'm going to, you know, do the shop or whatever, even if the task ended up being um, split along fairly traditional lines. It, it, it was this, it, it really is a struggle where you kind of just lose, you lose a lot. Okay. Sorry. A good relationship is going to rely on a lot of selflessness from mm. both sides and a lot of giving. And if you are constantly bean counting about who is doing what and feeling that your whole identity is undermined because you've ended up unloading the dishwasher, that's going to be a problem for a relationship, especially when you encounter real, you know, we're all going to encounter sadness. We're all going to encounter health issues. And you just can't think about that. Go, you can't think that way going into a relationship. You, you think about it as what strengths do I bring? What strengths? does he bring? Um, and, and, and also a, a premise of trust and love and respect for that other person that isn't always waiting for them to suddenly turn into an oppressor or overlord. Mm. So I think, I think that was damaging and that has prevented, I was, um, I was talking with a British feminist at one point and she said something really, really interesting. She said, the women's movement in America failed to get really substantial or tangible gains for women in the sense that we got a lot of, um, we got a lot of, uh, 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 you know, uh, I'm sorry. We, we get a lot of 
sort of acknowledgement of equality, but it's still true that we have none of the parental leave policies, you know, (laughs) it's the worst of any Western country. And I'm not going to be a policy expert and say, well, we need this or that from a federal government, or we need this or that from a company. But it is true that by pretending that we have the same needs as men and don't want different things, even if you call it, you know, parental leave and not maternal leave, um, you've you've made our it, you've made it very difficult to to compensate for um, the tangible differences that we do have, um, and that and I think that goes back to this concept of the sexes being um, defined by power um, mm-hmm. and and politics, and I think that there's just like the worst way you could ever think about love. Um, so yeah, love and relationships. Yeah. It, it, it is amazing to me watching, um, just how much it, it seems like there is an attempt to divide men and women in our culture as though there were two groups of people who didn't need one another more. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it, it, I was thinking about this before our conversation over the last couple of days related to how everything seems to be politicized these days. There always has to be an angle of um, of polarization or a power differential. Uh, I, I spoke to David Blankenhorn uh, earlier mm. this year who uh, co-founded uh, Braver Angels. I don't know if you know that organization. Yeah, I know David as well. Okay. I he used him. to be a big advocate for fathers. That's yeah. right. Yes. yes. Yeah. We yes. talked about that um, at, at length. I met him in in their headquarters in, in uh, Manhattan earlier this year. And one of the things I remember taking away from the conversation was and this is a clip I ended up making from from our our interview was related to how you know in his mind everything has become politicized now. Um, everything is you know a jockey for jock, people jockeying for power. Um, and who's really benefiting from that? How did we allow these kind of ideas to be? I don't know so widespread in our culture and then mimicked by so many people where that. Um, they kind of play into these games that are dividing all of us um, rather than rather than trying to to work together. Um, it might be a good time to transition into more of today. And we've already talked about the culture as it is now, but I would love to talk to you in some detail related to the podcast that probably most people now know you from, uh, the Femsplainers. And first of all, I love that name. Um, and I'd love to hear the beginning story about you, how you and Christina Hoff Summers began to formulate the ideas around the show and what really you were after, what the goals were initially, if maybe there were none, and maybe it was just girls getting together for cocktails and wine and and chatting, but you, you seem to have struck an ability to have conversations like this that are, um, very out of fashion especially in high culture and in you know, uh, high, the, the highest levels of mainstream media. What was the story there between the two of you? I know you've been friends for a long time, but how did you come to do the, the podcast in the first place? Well, yeah, the first podcast was, first podcast was called How We Met and What We Drank. Um, <laughs> and, uh, uh, but Christina Hoff-Summers, so she goes back uh, also she was. She wrote a very seismic book called uh, "Who Stole Feminism," 
And it came out um, before mine did, but she was a professor at the time. And she was, she had very similar, we had very similar observations. Hers was more on the, her training is a philosopher uh, by, uh, so she, she had, um, she was, um, sorry. So she was sort of struggling with what she saw in academia, which was this feminist, political, ideological um, uh, movement uh, about women. And at the time, it also made women seem weaker that part of like the Andrea Dworkins of that moment and uh, uh, Catherine McKinnon's was that women are so, uh, on the one hand, we're supposed to be just like men. On the other hand, we are so vulnerable that if a man makes a joke at a water cooler, you know, we're all just going to collapse and faint and, and, and we can't take care of ourselves. So it was a kind of assault on our own, our own strength and power um, as individuals. Uh, so, so she was sort of writing from that view. And then I had explained my journalistic and personal view. And we met um, a couple of years later at an organization in DC that had been founded sort of to promote a, a more updated version of feminism that wasn't so political and ideological. So anyway, so we both wrote about those things for years. Um, and then I got sick of writing about women um, just seemed to be going nowhere. She moved on. She did some then great work um, on uh, boys and how boys now were getting short shortchanged. And so the whole flip side, and we've seen as it coming through me too, that while there remain very important dynamics uh, between men and women that were, you know, came to the fore importantly during me too, but also, again, it was always the man's fault. It was always the man, you know, that, that women were robbed of any sexual agency, that if something went wrong that they didn't like, and it in no way could be construed as assault, or maybe it was just gross, maybe it was just a bad date, suddenly, as we saw, people were getting canceled. And, and I found this fascinating because I, we, we both did. We both found that there was real truth at the core that, that – especially in certain industries, women were still putting up with a lot of crap that they shouldn't have to. Uh, but on the other hand, it was a resurfacing of this idea that robbed women of sexual agency and made men de, fac de facto predators. So that's when I re re got reinterested in um, the women's movement. And I was thinking then maybe I should re-up my book, this book idea that I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. But then I looked at my daughters and they like, they're good readers. I mean, they read, but this is not the way you get through to that generation who you want to talk to. And at that time, gosh, it was only three years ago. And now I know everybody has a podcast. Uh, the DoorDash deliverer has a podcast, you know, but at that time it hadn't quite crested to that level. And I said to Christina, I said, you know, we should just take these conversations that we have over wine to a podcast. And this is how we're going to reach younger women. So that's how it started. And we start bringing in some of our friends and, and, you know, we know a lot of really interesting, accomplished women who don't fall into a group think. So that's how it evolved. And that's what got us reinterested in is sort of dressing what are really the same and eternal issues, but in a more contemporary form. Yeah. 
I know both of you tend to, you know, have, um, you share a lot of the same views, but you also don't always agree. I think I, I was watching an interview last night where I think you may have said that over time you've become slightly more liberal and she has become slightly more conservative. <laughs> How is the podcast and the conversations you've had, and you've talked to some of my favorite people. Um, and I, I, I just, I, this is partly why I love the medium so much is it's so rich for divergent views and really creating a worldview that makes sense to you as an individual and uh, getting access to world-class minds. How have you changed, if at all, in your you know, views on some of these core issues over, over the time that you've done these podcasts? Have you shifted in any significant way or do you think you see the world fairly similarly? With Christina or from the past? From the podcast, it related maybe specifically to the women's issues that we've been talking about today. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, part of it is just age that you do get mellower. Um, you <laughs> see how much, but it's, you get mellower because you see how much more is about luck, hmm. is about good fortune. Um, you know, that when I look back, I've, I've been married now for nearly 35 years and very, very happily. And, uh, and, and at the beginning, you have all these, you know, ideas about, well, this is what you have to do to have a good marriage. And over time, you just go, you know what? We just lucked out. We just so lucked out. We met each other at that time. And hmm. he was, a, you know, he's very smart and he could shake some of my dumb ideas out of me about, you know, a lot of this, what we were talking about negotiation and like, because anyway, so there was that. Um, and I, th uh, and then, um, in the podcast, so Christina is more part or had been more part of that then emerging, what is it called? International dark web yes. figures. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Intellectual uh, dark web, intellectual dark web. She'd yeah. been writing a lot because she, um, especially with her work on boys. So she is. She she was just in the fray longer than I was and in the political fray longer than I was. And she gets much, I think of her as a way more chill person than I am. But in fact, she gets way more agitated on Twitter and at political injustices. And also her heart's in academia. So when she sees what's going on in academia, it drives her insane. And and uh, so that, that was, I think, the tensions. Whereas I had checked out of all of that, um, was writing on completely different things. And, and so when we came together again, I was like, Whoa, Christina, you were always like the hippie in this. And now I'm the, you are getting way over agitated about this woke stuff. And, and so that was the sort of tension. Now we're watching, and you've seen this of course in podcasts that I feel like we're, we're, we're losing that wonderful, richness as you described it of conversation and a lot of the most successful podcasts are now these ben shapiro hmm. you know on the on on the right and then uh, the equivalent on the left that that it's becoming just as divided a world as our politics are and that people only want to listen to people they agree with and who are going to reinforce uh talking points rather than explore them so uh, and and as that has happened, Christina, well, she retired from the podcast last year. 
uh, she retired from everything last year. She, um, but she she also is now not part of that so much of that group of people who many of whom have gone down the anti-vaxxer route. There, there's just a strange pull that that if you were initially upset at, you know, and justifiably so at certain amount of woke politics on campuses that de facto takes you down other pathways um, that we've seen emerging over this past year, especially during the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. And for those who don't know, you know your husband is, is David Frum, who I've been reading him for years, very famous journalist, writer. I know he was a part of the Bush administration on 9-11, right? I mean, he was, yes. you guys were in yes. DC on that day. Yes. And one of the, one of the great things about your show that I have found is you've, you've been able to bring these very intellectual, heady, uh, male superstars and talk to them about subjects that I've never heard them speak about, namely dating, love, family. I, there's a, a show you did with Sam Harris, where who's one of my favorite thinkers, but very rarely do you get him talking about the more sensitive sides of life. Um, and I loved what he had to say. And, uh, you know, candidly, just for me as a, as a guy, it's helpful to have some of your more intellectual heroes give their take on, um, on dating and what to look for and how to prioritize one's life. And, and I remember, uh, one of the things that Sam, Sam was speaking about his, um, courtship of his now wife, uh, Annika, who he's been with for a long time, who, apparently had ghosted him for something like six months before that may have been your question to him, um, but before they reconnected and started, started dating and, um, and, you know, just his view that a lot of, from, from his angle, what can help a lot of guys is getting clear on what you're looking for. And, yeah. you know, as I remember him saying in your interview with him that, you know, if you are looking for someone who is your you know, provided there's romantic interest is your, is your equal, um, people opt out of that very quickly. And so there's a filtering that I think if you have, and I, you kind of alluded to this earlier about having very high standards akin to a, a great cocktail dress or whatever you were, you were uh, mentioning related to, uh, prioritizing what you're looking for. And in an interview I, I found last night, and this is one of the beauties of the internet, a conversation with you and your husband who, first of all, you guys clearly still really get along, yeah. uh, which is always just great for me to see that people who have been together for more than three decades still find each other humorous. Um, and, and again, I mean, I would, I would uh, view David somewhat similar to, to Sam. He, he goes on and gives such erudite uh, takes on society and ideas. And, and then he talks to you with like a gin and tonic and you guys are talking about your marriage and dating. And, uh, he was going through, you know, what his view would be for people. I think he was saying that like you, that you both have a very happy marriage in like the upper 98, 99% of couples. And what do you do as you kind of tick down that, uh, that ranking where, at what point does it kind of not make sense to persist in a relationship and and move on? Um, and that's something that I think a lot of people are grappling with of in an era of such abundance, 
Um, there is, I think, that the advantage to now is the ability for people to to sift more quickly. But I also think with that comes a a decreased aptitude for you know having an interest in in settling down and committing. And it's a long way of me me saying that um, I love the medium in its ability to allow people like your husband and Sam Harris to talk about these subjects. Cause I think there's just such an appetite and then just speaking selfishly as, as a guy for men to have their, their intellectual heroes speak to things that are arguably the most important things in life that don't get talked about very much. Um, how do you, you know, I know you also have a son and you're thinking about revisiting some of the topics from your old book. How do you, uh, approach this to him or did you i know he's recently engaged when when he was in the dating scene did you have a similar message for him as you did with your daughters or did you did you and david kind of approach that in a in a different manner in terms of your outlook on it well a couple things there um david once said about children they hear nothing but they see everything yeah and so i think there's a lot to just um in terms of our son, uh, just witnessing what a respected and loved father slash husband can look like. So um, I think just David's example was was very important. I, I, I wanted to go back just to one thing you'd said about these high standards, because yeah. one of the things, and, and you mentioned the abundance and the swiping, and God help me if I had to go on an app again. Again, I was never on an app. They didn't exist, thank God. Um, but I see this, of course, with my daughters, and I don't want to. I, I didn't want to tell them set impossibly high standards because I think that's part of the problem. Hmm. Is this sort of Jerry Seinfeld? Like, why did he seem perfect? Why did you dump him? I didn't like how he ate his peas. You know, like, like, <laughs> like. There's, there's a little. You, it's not like you're looking for perfection. What I do we tell them is divide, divide into correctable flaws and non-correctable flaws. So if he's a selfish jerk who treats you disrespectfully, okay, obviously that's going to be very hard to change. You don't like his taste in furniture or the way he combs his hair. That's like totally, you know, workable. So that's one of the things I fear is that, and, and, from men and women going both ways is they don't, they're not willing to invest any time into getting to know someone beyond an initial, you know, coffee, drink, whatever. Um, I think I caution them to delay having sex with someone uh, because I always felt it was a weird, and I wrote this in my book, it was a weird thing to make sex the entry level of a relationship which it is now like first you sleep with them and then you get to know them versus the accumulation of growing intimacy that it's, if, if sex is treated so casually between you and it's not the expression of something more than just sex, it's not an expression of doesn't have to be love per se, but a, a deep bond. It's, 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 you know, it's, it's going to be problematic. Um, so, so there's that. Um, and you asked me uh, why my son 
has had the good sense to <laughs> you didn't put it that way. Yeah. But he locked he he locked in in his second year of college. He met this lovely young woman. They were together eight years before he popped the question. Um, but they were both, you know, they're both, they were students together. They, they, uh, now I, I think a, a man, it is still true. A young man needs to feel, know where he's going, especially financially, because no matter how much the woman is contributing, he knows there's going to be at some point, she's going to have to, if they're going to have children, she's going to probably leave the workforce for some period of time, months or few years. And he's going to have to worry about buying the baby shoes. So I think there is a certain amount of men still carry these traditional responsibilities um, in their in their heads as well as in life. And so a man is thinking more that way. When when is why do I have to? Especially if he's not particularly interested in somebody, why do I have to get him marry this person and end up just? I don't know, giving her half my house down the road, you know, that there's a kind of selfish thinking that way. Uh, and, and so, so anyway, so my, my son is very much gone the route that my husband and I did, which is meeting early, locking in early, and then, you know, working and hoping for the best. Um, but yes, it's, it's this abundance as you describe and this lack of investment, willing to invest in each other for more than a couple of rounds is I find very troubling. Yeah. Um, how about re, you know the idea of you revisiting the book that you uh, that we've already talked about at length? H- how serious are you about that? Is that something that you're on the cusp of embarking back upon? Well, I've started still- to no, I've started to write the proposal actually, okay. and I'm I'm starting to um, consider retiring from the podcast world myself mm-hmm. while I while I do that uh, because I I can't do both at once, but um, and you know, with the risk that nobody under 40 will read it, but we'll, we'll see. Yeah. It's the best way I can communicate. I realize the important things. Yeah. Some people are still readers out there. I I happen to be one of them. So I, I have have an appreciation for the the written word. Um, you know, if you're comfortable sharing, I would love to know what you think has been helpful with, with you and David, like what, what did you, I don't know if it was an intuition or what both of you had built over time, but how have you been able, and this is just an interest of mine, trying to meet and learn from truly happy older couples to learn whatever can be gleaned from them um, to take forward for all of us. I'm sure, I know the both of you have talked about this at, at, at length publicly, but how do you describe that? What do you think has made your relationship so successful? Well, I think, and this was one of the theories of my book that arose from experience. Um, If you have the luck to meet someone younger when you're in your twenties, ideally, um, it's good because first of all, Growing together, uh, we we have, there's still this notion that you must be a fully formed individual before you can trust yourself, especially as a woman, you trust yourself to be in a relationship with a man and another person and not lose yourself. Like this is a big theme, you know, that um, to this day. And what we found was actually meeting very young. We were way more flexible with each other, you know, and we could, 
in the end sort of grow together, you know, like those, when you see like a Benjamina plant or two trees that eventually grow and sort of merge into one thicker tree. Yeah. So I've always felt that there was that, that, that if we'd met when we were older and a little more rigid in our ways, that would have been a lot harder. Um, it also allowed me, again, to my surprise, to have children sooner rather than later. And that was his idea that I was 27. We'd been married for two years. I got married at 25. He was uh, three years older than me. Um, and he said, uh, first of all, his mother was sick. She had been sick for many years. And so he had a much more sense of time hanging over him. Yeah. And then he just looked at me one day. He said, I don't want to be an old dad. Yeah. And that had, that just cut me to the core. I thought, he's so right. Like, do I want to be a, I mean, quietly between ourselves, we look at people our age who are, you know, getting remarried and the man suddenly has a 18 month old in the house. And we, we would just want to blow our brains out. Like if yeah. that were happening to us at this stage of life, but grandchildren, yes, <laughs> but um, <laughs> I'd love those. Uh, but, but anyway, uh, but you know, but he, that sense of when he said that, so we had, I thought, okay, so we, we had our first child and his mother was alive for the first eight months of her life, but she died. I felt always incredibly glad we had done that when we did, but you do use it suddenly. It's a very, um, it's a very freeing thing because when you become a parent, all from the outside looking in, it just looks negative, right? Oh my mm. God. You're, Life is no longer yourselves. You can't just go out and do what you want to do. But the most profound thing a child, one of the most profound things a child does to you is it takes you out of yourself. Mm -hmm. You stop thinking about yourself all the time. You, you're, you are, you, you, you're no longer first. You know, you're not putting yourself first. You're putting someone else first. And as scary as that sounds, it has an incredibly liberating quality to it that makes both you and in my case, my husband grow up a lot in a, in a positive way, um, in a more expansive way. You become a bigger person, not a smaller person. And, and, you know, the, the diaper years are short. <laughs> so it, and as a woman giving birth younger, it allowed me by the time I was in my mid thirties to really be able to do like my mother, a lot more things than I might've had I had babies, you know, starting at 35 or whatever. So just understanding how, um, and that, and that, and then that helps down the road that this idea that you are growing together, that everything you do, uh, I think it was his father who once said to us, you had to think of a marriage, your marriage as a separate entity from everything else. So there was you, there was him, there were your kids, there was the family, and then there was a marriage and the marriage was like a kid and you had to tend to that marriage that if anything was threatening the marriage, and I mean, on a small scale ways, like if mom has to get up one more time in the night, she's going to kill someone, you know, that, yeah. that, um, how do we, how do we help you through that? That, that you, and, and that's affecting our relationship. And that's, that. It, so we've always tended to the marriage as its own thing um, and made sure that both of us are happy at any given moment. So if I see him going through stress or he sees me going through stress, we help each other. Um, and, and, and that's, and, and we, and, and when there have been real times of 
difficulty, uh, you know, we, you put the marriage first because if the marriage, if the marriage isn't the first priority, everything else fails. So if, if, and what I noticed too, is when people today, a lot have kids, it's true. When we were having kids, like kids become all consuming, kids take precedence over the marriage, the kids take precedence over everything. And that's, that's going to explode. Um, you know, the kids are important, but the marriage has to come first. And if the kids are blowing up the marriage, then you need to sit down and talk if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think the, a lot of what we're talking about today is honestly, I th- I feel like I was kind of raised with a lot of these viewpoints and it's taken me to kind of get out of academia, um, out of school, kind of live a little bit to come back to you know, arguably what would be a bit more of a traditional perspective on uh, some of these subjects. And, I, you know, obviously you and Christina have done a lot of work speaking to topics that we've talked about today. Are there other thinkers, writers, podcasters that you also highly recommend or go to or would recommend maybe to your children that you think are sensible and, and sane? sources of wisdom and advice for young people who are interested in these topics? Oh, man. Um, We're talking about them in this way. Uh, No, I'm just trying to think of. I, I don't I don't have a good answer for that, because I think there aren't a lot of people discussing these in in frank ways. And I think when you asked about finding like you enjoyed listening to the podcast because I asked these thinkers about everything that yeah. wasn't about their ideas. Yeah. I've always thought David was oh, one of my, my great goals is to just get David to sit down and talk about everything but politics because yeah. he's so interesting on all of these things and he has so many views. Um, so it's, it, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's hard, it's hard to find. And I'm trying to think of what my children listen to or watch on this front. And I know my girls watch nonstop reality shows and I don't think they're getting great examples from yeah. Yeah. Uh, So it is, it is difficult. You have to, I think, look around at the relationships you admire and, and study them and figure out why they worked. Uh, I'll give you just an anecdotal example. I, I wrote about it in my book, but the sort of kind of thinking that leads to divorce as this woman was actually divorced for a while. When the kids were young, David and I would skate once a night down the street to this local tennis courts where there was like a local, you know, weekly group lesson and and we would play tennis. And one time we were doing an exercise and we'd put all our tennis rackets at the net and he was making us run up and down and stuff. And then at the end of this, uh, we were going to pick up our rackets and I, I, I began walking over to get mine and Davis was there. I said, don't worry, Dave, I got yours. And this woman in the group <laughs> subsequently about she's divorced said, wow, that's nice of you. And I looked at her, I said, I said, what, excuse me? She said, we getting his racket. Why don't you just make him get it himself? And I was like, whoa, yeah. <laughs> but why would I do it? <laughs> Imagine if David was getting the rackets and he goes, you can get yours yourself. You know, it was just an, but I, but it was very representative of a lot of low level. And I, you see that kind of low level rage more than ever right now between yeah. young men and women. And, and we've got a road to root it out of there. I mean, just 
being kind and caring to one another is is so critical. Yeah. That's it's, cliche it's, too. It's part of what I, I'm I'm attempting in part to do with this show is to allow, I don't know, disparate groups to try to reach one another. And in my assessment of the dialogue currently, people just seem to be talking past each other oftentimes in these caricatures and not actually discussing things with there there's a great uh, comedy bit i saw recently on on youtube and um this stand-up comedian um mark nordham i think his name is said um nuance is the is the new n-word uh which i thought was such a brilliant take on now where people have a very hard time holding two views at the same time um where like you were talking about earlier related to me too and i think you're right that there this was an important movement to articulate what women were still tolerating that is intolerable and shouldn't be tolerated. But at the same time, men were being canceled for often just missteps. You know, there was nothing necessarily anything criminal or even wrong about what they may have done in attempting to come on to a woman or to talk to a woman. But um, holding the difference between those two in your head is an art form. And I don't think it's necessarily encouraged. People kind of want to know what team you're on and then, Mm -hmm. you know, group you into being either a good person or a bad person. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or if you agree with that, but that's kind of my personal take on. Oh, it's, 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 it's very hard now. And again, I can't like quantify this scientifically, but I was talking to Andrew Sullivan another podcaster. Yeah. And he was telling me that like just the word centrist or moderate has become a really bad world, a word in certain political circles or all political circles. And, and that's terrifying. Um, I have found when we have spoken out on these issues on our podcasts, which we've done a number of times about uh, who is, um, who is that comedian who the woman wrote a whole article about him for Bumble because he didn't serve her the wine she liked. And (laughs) Oh, oh, it was big. It was big. It'll, it'll, it'll come back to me. And it just destroyed his career because she didn't like the date. Uh, um, And sorry. Is that, is that a, yeah, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yes. That was, that was shocking. And you look at it from like when my son was in college, I was really glad in many ways he got a girlfriend right away or fairly quickly because that was at a moment where he, I mean, he would recall some nights leaving a party at that point he was living off campus in an apartment and being followed home by a very drunk woman. And he had to sort of walk her back to her nearby apartment, but he was terrified because what happened if the next day she woke up and said, you know, said he'd done something and all he had done is try to get her back to her apartment. You, you know, so so yeah. young men are just walking on eggshells as well. Um, and and um, no, it's 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 very distressing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so a couple things that I want to go over before we we wrap this up. Uh, one is so I'm I'm going to be an uncle in the next month for the first time. So my younger brother is is about to have a kid, and it'll be a, a baby boy. And uh, you know, part of I guess what I'm feeling inspired to do or or I want to do is to get clearer myself on 
the context in which this kid is most likely going to be entering, obviously nobody knows the future, but trying to give my younger brother some advice or things to think about related to the world this kid is going to be growing up in. And we've touched on this a little bit related to, you know, advice that you've given your son, but if you have hope for an improvement in, you know, the coming decade or decades, what does that look like? Or what would it look like in your, in your mind, in terms of what a better environment or zeitgeist might be for men and women generally in our culture and improving some of the issues that we've talked about today? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I always try to remind myself, and this is when you we were talking about Christina too, and the, the terror of the woke on campuses and things and getting agitated that most people are not politically yeah. involved. Yeah. They may have habits of thought from what they're reading or watching, but they're not entirely into these kinds of gender politics. Um, it, 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 and I'm even with my own children who are, you know, um, my daughters who are ambitious and all that in the end, they want the same things that I wanted. And every generation going back into time wanted. you want to find someone who you love and who loves you back. And I think that's mm-hmm. true of men as well. So depoliticizing all of this is great. Um, I, I, as you say, you, you're presented with a baby nephew and, and I'm sure he's, I don't know his parents, obviously, but they might do the whole thing of presenting him with dolls and non-gendered toys, and that might work out, and that might be great, but then you might just find that he's going to behave much more boyishly mm-hmm. and and embrace that, accept that. Teach him, teaching young men how to um, how to be good, decent men not to abuse their physical strength that they have over women. I was talking about this with David, actually, in the context of, I did a show on um, actually husband or, or male uh, spousal abuse. Hmm. And um, he, I said, I said, you know, women actually really apparently take a lot of shots at their, <laughs> at their partners physically and other ways. And, uh, and I said, you know, what happens like a, a man just punching back, he goes, it's unthinkable. He said, he, he, he said, even, I mean, even if you're not societally cultured not to do that, man is always aware of his physical strength over a woman. And um, I mean, unless you're very tiny, obviously, but, and she's really large, but um, so learning the, the strengths and weaknesses you have as a man are important and civilizing those. And I think we've sort of lost track of why, how boys have to be civilized differently from girls. And, and, and um, so in sort of embracing their, their biological differences is, is good. I think it's healthy um, because that's, what's going to, and kids know it. Um, anyway, sorry, I'm rambling, but, uh, but so that, so yeah, diffusing, depoliticizing, encouraging young people to be together in healthy ways. I mean, I think my friend Caitlin Flanagan says like every 12 year old boy is, you know, lifetime of 
more porn than a World War II sailor, you know, like, uh, you know, there's there's porn and and you're not going to get it out of there. So being able to discuss why these are not good examples or realistic examples of the way the sexes should have sex um, is 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 another thing. So it's, it's I don't know. It's just having a healthy respect for differences. Um, embracing in many ways those differences and uh and and encouraging above everything to be kind to i mean it sounds so hokey but it's so true to be kind towards each other and, and generous and think better of people you know when you can not worse yeah last question i want to ask you is um just to kind of put a bow on the primary issue that we've talked about our primary subject that we talked about is you know, if, there, if there's a young woman who is listening to this podcast, who is maybe your youngest daughter's age, roughly, what counter narrative uh, subjects or ideas might you, and you've touched on this already in this conversation, but just to kind of highlight it again, might be useful for her to think about as she potentially is you know, graduating and going out into the world um, that is not the common messaging she might be getting from her university classes, her employers, what might be useful for her to keep in mind in your judgment to best set her up for a life that again, generally speaking would lead her into a fulfilled, meaningful life. Um, yeah, in, in, in a nutshell, um, Take your romantic ambitions or aspirations as seriously as your professional ones. And by that, I mean, be serious that if you are wanting to find someone and be with them and have children, that that's important. It's important to do it sooner rather than later. Like, take that seriously. Don't have a timeline. Don't say to yourself, well, I'll think about getting married when I'm 28 or 30, but I'm not going to think about it now. Woohoo! I'm young. Like, don't think that way. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and then um, be discerning, but discerning without being too picky, if that sounds, that sounds right. That you don't have to do anything that, sexually that men, especially in casual circumstances, expect you to do. Um, you don't have to do anything that makes you feel degraded uh, or will make you feel embarrassed or degraded after. Uh, it does not mean you're not cool. Um, and um, yeah, that, that's, that's and, and, and look for someone who you respect and who will respect you back. Um, that's, that's really about it it's it's not it it shouldn't be hard but it is yeah yeah i think that's well put and then trust trust dumb luck you know yeah that's also <laughs> part of it too um <laughs> well no matter what you do whether you do you know continue with the podcast or give it up and and write um i i just wanted to say thank you for uh you know introducing a dialogue that i don't think is very common in American culture currently. And, um, I've gotten a lot out of it. I think a lot of people have, 
And so I just, I really appreciate your, your efforts and also having the conversation with me today. I, I, I was really looking forward to it and um, I appreciate you sharing your wisdom and advice uh, for, for people who are going to listen to this. So I really appreciate the time and, and thanks a lot for doing this. Well, I appreciate you giving me the time and having me on. So thank, thank you so much. Yeah. Likewise. Um, great to meet you. Best of luck with everything. You too. All right. See you, Danielle. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible. Thank you.